welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and I am joined by my co-host, Eddie Webb. Hello. And a special guest, Mr. Mike Cheney. Howdy. Howdy, indeed, Mike. Uh, when was the last time you were on the Onyx Pathcast? Never. No, indeed. We have pointedly avoided you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I am called people facing. Indeed. You know, For good Yes, there's some some people we uh, keep in caves and treasure vaults, you know, like dwarves mining away at precious ores. But uh, every now and then, Mike comes up for air, and this time we caught him as he did so and dragged him up to a microphone and said, you will record an interview with us. <laughs> I feel like there's a world below joke in there somewhere. Uh, there are world below jokes anywhere. I'm finding more humor in that game now than they came from. <laughs> I'm hoping it gets reflected in the art, Mike. I gotta find all the guys for it, which is such a tall, tall order in this day and age. Well, actually, you know what? We can start on topic for once, because for anyone who is unaware among the listeners, Mike is our art director at Onyx Path Publishing, has been with us since the beginning. I wasn't anticipating starting with that, but let's talk a little about finding artists, and indeed, if there are artists listening... What are the what are some of the struggles that you run into in terms of recruiting new artists, finding reliable artists, those kinds of uh, quandaries? I mean, I said like with World Below, it's basically you know just trying to find an artist with the, the right style. Which, mm. like, well, let's say let's say for like black and white art these days, there's not a whole lot of demand for it because let's be honest, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons has moved past black and white art and they've moved forward into color art, namely uh, fully painted, whether it be you know conventionally painted or uh, digitally painted. Yeah. And so, you know, when the money's that way, that's where everybody goes. In hindsight, I probably should have thought about that 20 years ago. I did not. But, <laughs> no, I, I, I'm one of the sticklers. I'm going to stay with black and white, and I'm going to get a color with cell shading, and you'll find yourself uh, not, not getting any uh, art artwork after that kind of thing. But then you get, uh, like, a nice, you know, some, like, a nice retro project, and you're like, ah, oh, that's great. You know, nobody's doing this anymore. But that's why, um, I have like you know enough, or I've built up like a rapport with a bunch of guys from the olden times of the White Wolf era. Mm-hmm. So like uh, John Cobb and uh, well Vince Locke, and you know guys like that. So you know they still do black and white art, and you know not all the time, but they'll still do black and white art for me. So. Yeah, yeah, and uh, well, when talking about I guess hiring new artists. Uh, do how is there a good way of gauging things like reliability before hiring an artist? Because I appreciate sometimes we have to take a risk and hire someone new. Uh, but sometimes, just as with writers, you can hire someone new and they might ghost you, or they might uh, only stick around for one project. Uh, how do you, as the art director, manage a situation like that? Well, back in when we first actually started out in 2012, um, I would actually reach out to people I knew in the industry um, who were, you know, the artists that I'd worked with back in the early aughts and mid aughts were now working uh, for companies like Privateer and uh, I was going to say West End, but West End has been gone for decades. Uh, the guys who are doing Star Wars now that I can't remember the names. Oh, Fantasy Flight. Oh, right, yeah. That's right. And even uh, over at uh, Pinnacle. Mm -hmm. And as time has gone by, a lot of those, a uh, couple of those contacts have uh, kind of gotten out of the uh, RPG game and gone into other stuff. But a lot of the people I knew back in the day are now doing video game stuff. Yeah. And a lot of people mean Eddie knew for back in the day are doing video game stuff now. And so, like I said, right now it's basically you basically uh, you like to go on stuff like uh, the various art sites and a lot of places they will actually, you know, they'll mention what projects they've worked on. And you look at the name, the names of the companies and you can see which ones, you know, there are certain companies out there that if you mess around and you run late or you go off the description or whatever, they won't work with you again. So say if you find somebody with a uh, say, 20 samples from Fantasy Flight or Renegade or Modifius or somebody like that, you can pretty much trust it. Like, okay, this guy knows how to, you know, get a deadline. Yeah. 
the other ways, basically, sometimes we used to go to Gen Con, which hopefully we'll get to start doing again sometime soon, is you meet artists there and you can, you know, sort of, you get a feeling for them, for it, mm -hmm. and you kind of build off of that. Like, uh, we had a, an artist who worked on Scion that I met at um, Gen Con in 2015, uh, James Masingo. And his stuff actually, you know, really jumped out at me because he did, he had such a wide variety of stuff, like you could do the Grand Theft Auto style as well. And, you know, you talked, and like I said, I got him to do some stuff for the, uh, the Cyan Origin and both Cyan Hero, and, you know, he hit deadlines and stuff, you know, right on, right on track, and, you know. And when you sort of build a personal rapport with the guys, or, or I keep using guys, I shouldn't be just saying that, but artists, then sometimes they refer their friends mm. who are also in the industry or acquaintances. Um, like uh, we have an artist, Sam Denmark, who does a lot of stuff for us for Scion. He referred his friend, Barry Lenson, to us, who now does a bunch of stuff for Scion and other projects here. They're like Mage 20, World 20, stuff like that. Yeah, I remember we, uh, I think we first encountered Amy Wilkins through Gen Con, didn't we? Oh, yeah. She was, uh, she was cosplaying as one of the signature characters from Requiem. I can't remember the name. Uh, yeah, yeah. well, it was a character who appeared across uh, Bloodlines, the video game, and Requiem in one of the pieces of art. And oh, God. Rose is going to kill Damsel. Like... Damsel. Damsel, yeah. 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 Red Beret. Way. All I can remember oh. now is, yeah, Red Beret, that's a bad influence. I have no idea who that stuff is anymore as far as video games and Apparently Remember, Hawkins in the movie Predator was supposed to wear a red beret. Yeah, but they were only there to basically cut, was it, do rewrites. <laughs> but they wouldn't sign on to write, so they had to sign them on to act. And then they Moonlight as writers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And now Shane Black did, uh, what was it, Predators, which is awesome. Or not The Predators, The Predator. The one with uh, Olivia Munn and uh, Thomas Jane. You liked that one. I liked it simply because they had the same music and the same sound effects. See, I, I can get that just by watching the original Predator and not assault <laughs> my senses by watching a new one. Well, after watching Predator about 400 times between 1994 and 1996, I have to kind of space that one out now. Fair mm. enough. Yeah, you, don't, you can't watch the exact same thing over and over and over again. Well, I said, you know, when you did Wars of War, the Amazon for Rage, you can see how many times I watched Predator in that art. Because <laughs> they're all there. Including, uh, what was it, uh, Dane's, uh, not Dane's, the guy from Wentworth's, uh, Jesse Ventura's character with the giant of... Uh, Blaine. Uh, Blaine. And that was Gus just checking to make sure all of our technical stuff was working. Yep, uh, yeah, just for the sake of the listeners, we do have a fourth uh, guest, or fourth... Uh, host on this episode is Gus Mike's dog, who is being dutifully quiet during this uh, recording. I've got to say, I mean, we're only nine minutes in, so things could take a turn. <laughs> Plenty of time. <laughs> uh, but I guess what I think I first came across your work, Mike, uh, through Vampire: The Dark Ages. I feel like that that may oh, be yeah. the first time I. I identified, I guess, name and art, you know? Uh, and that was back uh, as a fan before I, uh, you know, entered my bitter phase. Um, and I th I feel like you... I remember artwork by you in Clan Book Cappadocian, maybe? Dark Ages. Mm. And that was the weird one. That was uh, after the, uh, the stuff that happened in the end of 96, where... A great many of us went on walkabout for a few years. Mm. But I did that one at my mom's house, and uh, she was the entire time. I'm like, what was it, 25, 24, 25 years old, and she's freaking out like I'm going to spill Indian all over her couch. And these are couches that are 20 years old that I have over there since I was a child. <laughs> They've endured, they endured, you know, me, my brother, and two sisters, and she was worried about me getting it. I'm like, I, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I remember the I guess the thick blocks uh, of black shading in in that book. It's all the things uh, I guess you remember that that strike you because it's been a years since I've years and years since I've read that book. I don't even oh. own it anymore. 
but I can certainly recall how some of the characters looked with uh, you know sort of half in darkness that kind of uh yeah. kind of shading that was my oh that was my big thing back in the 90s try to put as many pounds of paint on one piece of art as humanly possible <laughs> uh, i look back at it and i'm going what were you thinking what were you? all that ink wasted well clearly not wasted because i remember it clearly oh a lot, you know, a lot of people remember that and you know there was a oh, there was a couple other ones like freak legion and stuff like that where it's like, what? Everybody's doing Jim Lee now. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every book we tried to do something different. So well, that, I, oh, sorry, Eddie, you go ahead. I was just, I was going to ask, uh, Mike, I mean, I know, I think you and I have talked about it, but I'm curious, who are some of your artistic influences? Well, my biggest one, of course, as we all know, is Mike Mignola. Right. I unknowingly got into him with Conan the Barbarian and Alpha Flight in the 80s. Oh, really? I didn't know who he was. I just loved that artist on Alpha Flight and Conan. And my old sketchbooks are filled with me, like drawing uh, Puck and Vox from Alpha Flight, mm-hmm. and Cloak and Dagger, and stuff like that. Oh yeah. And then, and then years later, I you know got was it, you know bought Hellboy because I was familiar with his uh, work in like Batman and stuff like that. And I'm like, wait a minute, this this look, that signature sounds familiar. But yeah, he goes all, his stuff all goes all the way back to like Doctor Strange and stuff like that, like Rocket the Raccoon. Oh man, I had forgotten his bit on Rocket Raccoon. But yeah, him, uh, of course, Kevin Nolan, who is one of the best all around jack of all trades artists in the comics industry. Mm-hmm. Logos, lettering, inking, penciling, man did it all. Still does, I think. And uh, other, I guess my third biggest one is like, was it Grease Tim from Batman the Animated Series? Mm. Yeah. That was the one, that was the style I really wanted to do art for Technomancer's toy box way back in the day and they wouldn't let him do it. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah, I, I do think it would have stuck out like a sore thumb, but I mean, uh, uh, my work has always been called, quote, unquote, cartoony and I'm like, oh yeah, because it's those three guys all kind of built in there. And... <laughs> right. Right. And in the 2000s, it, I mean, I really went cartoony because I was like, okay, you know, everything, you know, the future is, you know, getting younger kids to play these kinds of games and, you know, Fun games and stuff like that. Lo and behold, decades later, you find out, oh yeah, that it was that was the way to go. Yep. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, one of the subjects that connects the three of us and probably won't come up in this. Uh, so that, to my knowledge, there is, I guess, a if you like, sister episode to this one being recorded by our other Onyx Pathcast hosts. And I don't think this subject will come up for them, uh, but it's uh, the wonderful world of professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Obviously, all of us have spent some time in the ring, and <laughs> have worn a title oh. or two. Some of us have tried to, and we're told we were too short to just turn around and leave. And then that's how you got into art. Well, no, I was. This was like ninety-seven, <laughs> ninety-eight, right in the height of the Monday Night Wars. Mm-hmm. What I was working at was a couple of miles from the WCW power plant. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So me and a couple of guys from work jumped in the car, drove over there, and we were going to try to get a tryout. Mm-hmm. You know, because like I said, I wasn't, you know, you know, ripped or anything like that, but I was, you know, kind of built like Kevin Sullivan was back in the, you know, late 70s. So I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I'll work. And they're going, yeah, if you're under six feet, don't bother. Wow. And it was, that was rough. And then, you know, and to be fair, it's true. I mean, you go to the live events, you see these guys, they're not six feet tall plus. I mean, they're, you can't see them half the time. Yeah, I suppose the issue is the ultra-tall or stacked wrestlers dwarf anyone who isn't. So it's like oh, yeah. in, in AEW, uh, there's a very popular wrestler, John Silver, mm-hmm. uh, who's in the Dark Order, who looks miniature because oh, yeah. he stands next to everyone else, uh, but could very easily uh, probably dominate someone like me uh, in, in that kind of matchup, uh, scripted or not. Sorry, uh, not scripted. What is it? It's predetermined. predetermined. Yeah. Um, but that's actually fascinating because um, uh, I lived by Ohio Valley Wrestling, which was the WWE training camp. Uh, was that during that the Jim Cornette era or during the uh, post-Jim Cornette era? It, it was post-Jim Cornette. Um, uh, it was when they were kind of Originally, they were kind of the stealth WWE camp, and then they became officially the WWE training camp before they scrapped that for NXT. 
Um, like, so I got to meet people like um, uh, John Moxley before he came up. Um, I got to meet uh, um, uh, Nigel McGuinness back when he was living out of his car, you know? Uh, oh, so, God. yeah. Um, so it's wild because you're right. You guys are in, in Atlanta. So, yeah, of course, you're right by the power plant. So you probably, uh, similarly, like, you know, uh, had access to some of those early careers. Well, not only that, back in the like, late, late, late 90s, the White Wolf guys would end up seeing all these, a lot of the wrestlers at the clubs. Right. Mm-hmm. Raven is, was one they caught. Disco Inferno, they met a lot of times, apparently. Wow. Yeah. I never and, of course, there's the Gangrel connection, isn't there? Oh, God, I love that connection. Simply yeah. because I got so many free tickets out of going to see WWE events. <laughs> Yeah, I, in fact, I don't know that uh, the listeners have ever been told the story. Do you know it in depth, Mike, or do you just know the outcome? I just know the outcome. It was basically they, hey, this is some one of our term things. Like, oh, okay, and here we'll give you free tickets. And all I basically ever found out was basically like when you played uh, WCW or not WCW, uh, WWF. It was a WF Attitude, and I think the, that may be the only one he was no, in. I think, I think the first SmackDown game also Was Gangrel in SmackDown? Okay. I think so. He was also in, like, you know, uh, WrestleMania 2000. Ah, uh, yes, you're right, you're right. And uh, No Mercy. But yeah, they had, like, a little uh, copyright White Wolf, uh, you know, those game studio or publishing they were doing back at that time. Mm-hmm. It changed so many times. <laughs> yeah, we got... The last the last set of passes we got was when uh oh was a the me and Brian Glass got the last two passes to go, and we went and saw it and it was when uh, Triple H and uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin were having to go as a tag team and they couldn't attack one another, and so it was one of those things where they're so they're trying to tag against uh, Kurt Angle and somebody else I can't remember who it was, but that was also the night the where the Big Show made a return. And you actually get to see how tall these guys actually were. Oh wow! We were we were a couple of rows back from the ring, and Big Show comes, and it's like the Triple H and TC Boss, and I was shocked how huge, tall and huge they were. And then you know Big Show comes out, and he's like you know head and shoulders above them, steps over the top rope, which was you know at their uh, chest height. Yeah, mm. and I was like, oh my god, he was monstrously huge. But then you, like I said, we met. I met, uh, what was it, Raven and uh, Saturn at Dragon Con back in 98, 99. And they mm-hmm. were my height. Yeah, we've uh, we've had, done a few, well, a couple of uh, straightforward wrestling role-playing games. I say straightforward. We've done wrestling RPGs, haven't we? Uh, but now I guess um, to to take things back slightly to to the topic at hand, one thing I know a lot of people are probably going to be interested in, especially aspiring artists, is well, Eddie and I both know from the writing submission folder, sometimes people don't follow the instructions on the submissions page, which is very sad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because sometimes you'll receive a good submission and it won't have followed the guidelines. And uh, But, uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, sometimes people will follow it entirely and then uh, <laughs> may not send a great submission. But when it comes to art submissions, if you could give a few pieces of advice to aspiring artists, where would they be pointing you, Mike? What would they be sending you? What are you looking for when aiming to hire a new artist for us? One of the big things I, I try or attempt to stress to most artists is basically think cinematically. It's not so much you're basically illustrating a scene. You are kind of imagining yourself as a cameraman. Yeah. And you're trying to get that fantastic shot like they're you know a cinematographer would i mean you're basically you know you're the guy that ridley scott's trusting to go in and frame that shot just right and it's always so much you know when you get something like that where it looks naturally you know exciting it looks a lot of action but it's not you know overly done as opposed to you know portraiture which we got a lot and still do get a lot of what you're um and to be fair and um, this basically the way it's progressed is basically since a lot more artists are doing uh, concept art now for video game companies as a day job, that's a lot of what video game companies require is basically a lot of uh, head-to-toe uh, artwork, like, you know, uh, like we have splats, but way back in, you know, the CCP days, a lot of the artists would basically do lineups of all the characters and stuff like that, and they would have yeah. these you know, clothing on it. And doing scenes was not exactly a thing they would do a lot of. 
but they would do maybe right. one or two to set a mood and that was it mm-hmm. the rest of it was basically uh straight up either like a uh like a setting landscape or a character shot and so that's where a lot of it is especially and again that's where the demand is that's where you tend to you know shift your talents towards and but back before that it was basically the portraiture thing was everybody was so in, inspired by the Bradstreet full pagers and vampire that everybody wanted to do that and I remember at one point um they literally started telling people to they tried to guide artists to doing less uh like the vertical ones where every, the portraiture was so easy to do mm-hmm. like, towards horizontal um I remember uh when I was doing art back in ancient ancient times um like I was told basically you had to have a minimum of two characters per per scene and you know it had to be something going on it couldn't just be talking heads it couldn't just be somebody handing somebody a piece of paper there had to be some sort of action or tension going on yeah and so I kind of brought you know what the way I was kind of you know art directed or shepherded or whatever you want to call it back in the day and bring it into what I do now so so you you advise the artists who are looking to submit aim for that dynamic style that cinematic mm-hmm. style more than anything else yeah like I said I've always said you know think of it like you're illustrating a scene from a movie mm. not that you know you're nothing static you always want some sort of motion some sort of uh something going on i know we've had that conversation when it comes to art notes uh from the development side that you're not a huge fan of the standing around a table pointing at a map pieces or the uh (laughs) well yeah that's that's not true now there's one in uh the trinity core book Mm -hmm. where it's like they're planning out a caper i'm like that's perfect for what it is because it works with the text but it's not static it's not you know it's it looks like a, it's like a kind of a three-quarter overhead shot. It looks like it's a framed uh, scene from a movie. Yeah. See, it makes me want to uh, kind of... Uh, I'm sure, I won't. I promise you I won't, Mike. But it makes me want to put a lot of art notes in where people are sat around a table and something is happening, is about to happen. So, for instance, people are sat in a diner and a car's about to is smashing through the window and about to run them over. Or you can see the red dot of a sniper rifle on one of them. Or, or there's a bomb underneath the table and one of them's aware of it and the other two pe- people sitting there aren't. That kind of thing. But see, you still got tension. you still got some sort of dramatic effect that's going on. Uh, it's actually useful because we don't get the opportunity very often to to talk about art notes with with developers, and some people may think this is a um, this is a topic that I guess doesn't concern me. But when you think of the art that you enjoy in a role playing game, there does tend to be something going on. You can attach a power to it, or you can attach a monster to it. You can look at it and you can say. I could use this art in my role-playing game to depict what I'm trying to describe, or or similar. Uh, so, other than the sitting around a table, are there any big no-nos that you would say for developers writing art notes for upcoming books that you don't want to see? Well, of course, I don't want the standard, you know, vertical piece with the uh, single character posed. Uh, it's we don't generally get that, and if we ever do, I generally try to massage it a little bit so it's a, you know something going on there. But yeah, there's that. Uh, anything that's basically uh, like when we do lineups for different character types, I prefer them to be interacting like it's a scene or like they're they're at a socially interacting as opposed to just a lineup. Not the D and D style catalog shoot. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, you bet. Uh, we did it for uh, the Thirteenth Precincts book. Where you'll see like a bunch of NPCs, and we decided let's try something different. Let's do we'll group them all in. Uh, we have like four or five scenes. Yeah, I remember that now. You had the uh, different cops. Like one Ooh. of them's pinning a wanted poster up on a board. There's two of them arguing. I think someone's talking to a prisoner. That that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, and it's all within the same shot. Yep. And then we did. I did a similar thing back in uh, Hunter the Vigil First Edition, where we had. Hunter basically is a three, had that three tier thing where basically you have like the individual people who do jobs. Mm. And one of the art notes we were missing was when I said, What about the tier one stuff? There's a huge chunk of text here with nothing. So we're going, How about we have all these different quote unquote or the, the occupations all interacting, doing something together? So you got like the computer hacker and the, oh, I can't remember half of the rest of them. Uh, like the, the, all the various different types of uh, people in a Hunter group would basically be all standing around, like, you know, some sort of central action. Yeah. 
and so that sort of thing is one of you know it takes the npc portrait thing and you know kind of gives you something new something more fun with it mm. but i mean at this end of the day i mean the the dungeons and dragons you know catalog style lineup is also you know it works in certain things like we did that in uh cavaliers of mars where we uh was the various races we had those in uh three and four uh character uh, lineups but they were done they still had a kind of a social somewhat like they're not quite posed they're still kind of interacting that sort of thing. yeah Oh yeah, I still think very fondly of uh, a lot of those D and D Pathfinder, you know, even Shadowrun shots where it is a essentially like six catwalks adjacent to each other, with six characters all walking to the screen like they're the cast of Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though it isn't necessarily spectacular, it still illustrates for you the kind of character you can play. I suppose it's our splat art in miniaturized form, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's sitting, you know, sometimes you want to do something different with the with what you're working on. I mean, at some point, maybe we'll, you know, do like a, I'm still waiting around to find that perfect book to do like the double wide, double horizontal piece where basically you have all your uh, different character classes or what our uh, different occupations or whatever wind up in a, you know, big scene. Hmm. Sort of like the science stuff it, instead of doing like, you know, splats or headshots. Yeah. Well, we'll have to look at some upcoming books for that. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I have no doubt we'll be able to find some. Oh, I'm sure we will. Maybe we'll try that in Aegis. Who knows? Mm. Well, so that's a very that's a topical topic, Mike. Because wouldn't you know it, at the time that this episode goes out, that crowdfunding campaign on Backerkit will be running. Now, Eddie knows a lot more about it than I do. Well, it's true. I did just interview uh, uh, Lauren and Ian about it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious to see kind of where the art will go with that because it's, it's not quite a fantasy book. It's not quite a sci-fi book. Um, so it'd be a, an interesting way to kind of do maybe go back to the early topic, you know, kind of maybe Conan-esque ancient history vibe, you know? Oh, I think the big thing is basically try to keep it from not looking like Sion is the biggest thing for me right now. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. We don't want, we don't want to want to look, want to look distinctive. But we tried to get a couple of, uh, well, like the splat art for that is a different style than what we usually get for something like uh, any other books, actually. Mm-hmm. Although we did get that artist to do the uh, splats for, uh, the, they came from the RPG anthologies. So. Oh, nice. Yes, those are beautiful pieces uh, for the RPG anthology. I'm looking forward to seeing that expanded out to the uh, vast range of, uh, of character types that's going to be available now that we've funded several additional chapters yes uh yeah that'll be <laughs> that'll be interesting to look at that art budget have fun with that mike so it will make it work is, is, every, sure. is every archetype getting a splat well, chapter, but... yeah yeah we, we we shouldn't uh we shouldn't confirm until we have seen the entire book uh... fair enough <laughs> i'm just curious because <laughs> because yeah, that could be a whole lot um, yeah, but, I mean, but that's 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 uh, maybe something also kind of worth talking about is the kind of the the math that goes into the, these budgets. I mean, we we internally we call them the art buys of which is you know how much art we're gonna buy for each book. Um, how do you kind of very rough level? I mean, not to go specific, very roughly. How do you ca- calculate that? We basically have with the it's uh we have an art density goal. It's it's an like when I say stuff like that, or basically we use things. That, Terms like uh, one piece for every six pages. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, we don't do that. We don't like one, two, three, four, five, six. Boom. One, two. Right. It's it's a rough guideline. It's it basically gives a number to divide by. So it's basically you divide the there's a word count average between a full page and a half page of art or half page of text. You average mm-hmm. that out, and then you divide that by the pieces per page or per pieces per page mm-hmm. and then um divide all that up and then you kind of massage that depending on the needs of the book uh how much budget you have to work with that sort of thing mm-hmm. but like you know, the more popular the, the books like uh like a oh like um we did chicago by night for v5 that had a much denser art by than say something like a uh well like a non-kickstarter book for example right and, and i'm sure like there's 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 also considerations like um the chronicle starkness books tend to be duotone uh as opposed to 
uh, uh, world darkness tends to be full color, so I'm sure that also modifies things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, well, I said if you looked at the Chicago book, I and mean, we had the book required a ton of portraits, so it was one of those. Okay, we had we sat down and go, okay, then we only have this many pieces of art per chapter, but we have all these portraits in there. Like, okay, and so that's when that sort of thing fluctuates. You have to massage the numbers and in there. Yeah, but basically, it always boils down to what does the book need? What's its requirements? What would be nice to get on in there? Kind of, you know, jazz it up a little bit, that sort of thing. I've got a question for you, Mike. That's a little off uh, off piece uh, before okay. we let you go. Uh, it's still related to the industry, but it's something I don't think I've ever spoken to you about. Do you ever get a chance to role play? I have not played a role playing game since Grand Hunter back in two thousand eight. My goodness! Oh yeah, and Eddie Grant. I did. I did run it. I ran it in the conference in the conference room slash lunchroom. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It's one of those things. Like it's. I mean, granted, you know, I'll still play. You know, an online role playing game. Like I mean, I consider World of Warcraft a role playing game. Right. <laughs> I don't consider Skyrim a role playing game, but you know, there are people that do. I guess I don't know. I mean, I play on a role server on World of Warcraft, but that's. I mean, it's literally things. an MMORPG, so. Good like old more pigs. <laughs> but you spend a lot of your time with uh, with miniatures, don't you? No, I don't mean like uh, bottled spirits. I mean. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Ed, Eddie and I when we were at UK Games Expo, we saw some full painted Masters of the Universe miniatures. Oh uh, yeah, and um, and we thought of you. I've got there was some cool linear not ones. It's basically I think I have what was it the main box and the what they call the big box of power. Nice. I did not opt for the uh, the Shira package because. Um, Chira and all the Horde Act and the Horde came along well after I had moved on from Motive. So I think those were, yeah, Masters of the Universe cartoons were out when I was like in grade school and early junior high. And then by the time Chira hit, that mm -hmm. was well, ready to go off to high school and I'd moved on to other stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah the, those are, those, those models are fantastic. Yeah, I was say some of the Hordak stuff actually does look really, really cool. We we saw some Matthew, I saw some of the boxes at UK Games Expo and it just they look amazing. Well, I was I basically I was telling my wife as long as they get the boxes with trap jaw on them, I don't care. <laughs> trap jaw was always my favorite when I was a kid. Just yeah, trap jaw and was it his bounty hunter version before he lost his jaw and his arm? Oh wow. Yeah, that's in the. Uh, they remade it in the late nineties, didn't they, or early two thousands, where almost every one of Skeletor's major hench persons had a backstory. So I think yeah. Triclops and Evil Lynn were both uh, on the same spacecraft as Skeletor or Eldor. Yeah, when they crashed wow. in Eternia. Well, that was also when Keldor was. What was it? Randor's uh, brother somehow. Yeah, they they certainly switch things around a bit. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. The, the Masters Universe stuff I have collected between the Cool Minionaut stuff. There's another company out of uh, Eastern Europe. I can't remember what part of Eastern Europe, in, but they also have a license to another Masters Universe line. And if you go on Etsy, you can find a bunch of resin, not quite Masters of the Universe, Masters of the Universe models. Hmm. <laughs> yeah just like the not quite 140k space marines <laughs> yeah i mean i have a lot of not quite fallout uh new vegas models and a lot of i'm not saying they're, they're knockoffs of ninja turtle characters i'm just saying it's krang in a not quite uh or in a more anime styled uh body yeah <laughs> i i bought knockoff battlestar galactica miniatures when the series was being reimagined so i could paint them uh, that was a while ago now but yeah, I have. There's an entire room of the house devoted to just the miniature painting hobby at this point. <laughs> nice. And my wife is also a part of it, and she, although she's basically just done pretty much as, you know, you know, Warhammer, Space Marines, and Inquisition person, whereas I am pretty much anything it's it's sculpted and tiny. I'll buy it. <laughs> I mean, I have stuff in my collection that's you know older than a lot of people's kids right now. <laughs> Yeah, I've got I've got a friend who inherited a great deal of um, Warhammer Fantasy miniatures not long ago, and I don't I assume it's the original edition uh, because he's got this box full of half painted um, 
stuff that he never played with before, but he's determined that he's going to use it. And so he's he picked a faction. He went for the I think it's the is it the Crypt Keepers, the mummies, the undead in original Warhammer. Oh yeah. And yeah, he's decided he's going to paint all of those up, take it to a uh, a gaming club, and try and give those slow moving bastards a go. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I keep saying that I'm going to paint this and paint that. I mean, I've got I have stuff from Epic the first time around I did it sitting in here in a, in a box with cellophane on it. Or wow, it's oh, between that and like you know the various uh, was it Warhammer quests? I've got tons of that stuff and still in cellophane. Haven't touched it yet. I think that's the fate of every miniatures collector and painter, though, isn't it? No one finishes their collection before buying something new. Well, back in the White Wolf days, we had a deal going with the guys over at Reaper. We would send them books every month, and they would send us a bunch of miniatures every month. Ah. So I've yeah. got a ton of metal right now from those I was going to say, I remember in the old office, there was a huge like crate just full of Reaper miniatures. I always wondered where they came from. We had that was that started back in 2002 and went all the way up to 2009. Yeah, that's when I started. And between that, um, I got a bunch of privateer stuff because back at Gen Con in 08, a bunch of people we knew worked at privateer, so we did a product swap. Yeah. And I got a bunch of Crick stuff. And oh, cool. I'm still sitting on all of that. But yeah, it's one of those things like, you know, you. You buy a bunch of stuff and it just sits there and gathers dust and gathers dust. And you go, I'm going to get that stuff painted one of these days. And, and it doesn't help the fact that they come out with a new edition of Warhammer every three years. Right. So it's like, oh, yeah, the Games Workshop, though, doesn't it? Oh, they apparently they do really well. I mean, you got to do pretty well to basically keep getting statues of, what was it, the Space Marine outside your headquarters. And uh, I think now they have like a, one of their new, whatever those Stormcast guys. That's what they are. Yeah, they had a massive orc in their lobby for a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought Blizzard was being, you know, kind of, you know, uh, maybe it was flexing there with their, uh, what was it, uh, Wolf Rider they have out in front of <laughs> their place. Mm -hmm. Not even close. I mean, like I said, Games Workshop has, apparently has a rhino tank. Oh, wow. And they have a, a museum attached to their headquarters, I think, and one of the yeah. giant yeah. oven stuff in it. And one day I will make the pilgrimage, but well, I still have uh, also, you know, dreams of making it to salute. I mean, you bring out your lead. Uh, gathering they do with the guys from uh war games foundry where oh, it's cool. basically one of the old warhammer alumni out there and they play uh warhammer first edition that's really i cool. just want to go really. basically you get to meet like you, you could meet john blanche and a bunch of those guys i'm like oh yeah, so now, now now that i'm here i didn't know that that i may have to go check you out should the, go. I said, yeah. Yeah. Museum, yeah 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 it's uh it's tourable it is, uh, yeah, I, I don't know whether it's open seasonally or whether it's all year round, but it's definitely a place I know several people have been to to go on the tour. Hmm. Uh, yeah, but do it, Eddie. I think you're closer to it than I am. That's just my problem. Yeah, if you're in Nottingham, it's, or if you're near Nottingham, that's where pretty much 90% of it is. And then I have, Wargames Foundry guys moved all their stuff out of wherever they were, and now they're out in a country manor that they converted into their headquarters. Well, yeah, Nottingham used to be a fairly central place for the UK gaming industry. It's a just random piece of trivia, because Games Workshop was there, Fighting Fantasy was there, most of the authors for Fighting Fantasy were there, because they spun off of Games Workshop. Yeah, I think um, Mantic's there, I believe Warlord's still there. Yeah, now I'm trying to think, were TSR UK in Nottingham? I've, okay, so I I just did some some researches recently. I I believe they were, huh. because I did some research into this for the uh, uh, extra credits video I did about the history of D and D, and basically um, the TSR UK was renamed Games Workshop when TSR pulled the license from TSR UK. Right. Um. So it's the same group of people that just rebranded themselves into Game Works Games Workshop because because they were still a distributor at that point in time, I believe. Yeah, I think uh, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston, not that Steve Jackson, uh, right. were the two major players because uh, they made a fair bit. Then they did their fighting fantasy, sort of choose-your-own-adventure books as well. And yeah, yeah. so uh, Nottingham was the place to be in the UK if you were into uh, your <laughs> RPGs and miniatures games nowadays, maybe slightly less. Oh, yeah. Oh, I said the... The UK was basically you know, always kind of. I, I think I might have a more you know idealized version of Nottingham, where it's you know, glistening city with little metal men everywhere. Oh, definitely not. No, 
No. <laughs> oh, hell no. Not mistaken, that's also where Judas Priest is, you know, hails from. I'm like, yeah, I don't think Priest came from there. Yeah, I mean, it's closer to that than it is to Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Mike, uh, we haven't spoken about Onyx Path or art for a good little while, uh, so we should probably cap off before sending you on your way uh, by talking about something relevant, relevant, something on topic, shouldn't we, Eddie? <laughs> well, I guess, whatever. I mean, we started on topic, so I feel like we have a buffer now of off-topic we can go through. I don't feel like we've spent enough time talking about wrestling. <laughs> we we did kind of skip over that. Well, we we have spent so many episodes, Eddie, having to restrain ourselves. We we've kept it all in. That's true. That's true. You want to talk about the late eighties? You know, Jim Crockett promotions. You know, wrestling Oh, you know me. I'm happy to talk about wrestling history, Mike. I am. Uh, <laughs> like I, it, I want to watch your champions at least once a year now. So. Uh, I maintain, I think, Bash at the Beach 89 is one of the uh, best pay-per-views ever ever put to screen. But there aren't many people who would agree. Well, that's just the thing about pay-per-view. I could get those back in Valdosta because we didn't have the kind of cable box to get those. Mm -hmm. We had the... When I left Valdosta, we had the ones where you push the button on top. The big clunky ones. Oh, yeah. Do pay-per-view when you want to move to Atlanta, then you can actually get pay-per-view. Like those were events those were closed circuit no something different pay-per-view uh the wwe ones were closed circuit right that's how they got the uh well that's one of the reasons they got the monopoly because closed circuit became available everywhere sooner didn't it i think um, yeah, I was a closed circuit hmm. i may yeah. be getting it the wrong way around but i remember it played a major part in the wwf succession Mm-hmm. Oh, it's because they uh, muscled uh, WCW and they got the first... Starcade was not covered in pay-per-view because WWE... Or it was Survivor or... Series uh, yeah. 88, maybe? 87 or 88? And they said, basically, if you don't if you carry this, then you're not getting this. Or, yeah. Oh, that's if, you don't right. carry, if you carry Starcade, you're not getting SummerSlam or you know, something like that. Yeah. yeah. That's right. I do remember that. You know, English free. Yeah, and it's very odd because people who were there uh, in the WWF at the time still to this day in interviews will deny that they were muscling uh, Jim Crockett or WCCW, I think, as they were out. They basically say, no, it was, um, you know, that just happened to be the date our pay-per-view fell on and uh, just bad luck for them, I guess, that we were on the same day at exactly the same time. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know why 30 years on or thereabouts, um, they won't just say, no, it was a strategy. We told uh, the various networks, you're not going to be able to carry WWF shows if you show this WCW one. Uh, or NWA one, I guess. Uh, but it's funny, as you as you were mentioning it, um, a while ago I did find uh, people have been uploading bits and pieces of uh, Mid-Atlantic Wrestling or Mid-Atlantic Championship, oh, yeah. onto YouTube. Tony Schiavone without a mustache? Yeah. Ricky Steamboat <laughs> with a mustache. <laughs> was that when he was Ricky Youngblood? Uh, no, totally different guy. That's Ricky oh. Youngblood, totally different guy. Steamboat and Youngblood. He is, that's guy. it, but his surname, his actual surname is Blood, isn't it? Is it Blood or Youngblood? It's uh, Ricky Steamboat. I'm going to have to look it up now unless Eddie can mute himself and quickly type it in. <laughs> but, um, right if now, you I watch just... it, it's, it's really weird because you're seeing in Mid-Atlantic, Ric Flair works face. But in Georgia, uh, in Mid-South, and in Florida, he works heel. And it was really weird because you're seeing, you're seeing two different dynamics. Right. Um, it's, Rich, it's Richard Henry Blood, by the way, um, Matthew. Okay, so yes, his surname was Blood, mm-hmm. and for some reason, he was changed to Ricky Steamboat in right. the 70s. Why, yeah, why you would change your surname from Blood, it feels like the perfect name for a wrestler. But... Maybe to be friendly to kids. Yeah. Um, he had James face. Uh, yeah. son was his tag team partner in Mid-Atlanta. Uh, yeah, but but it's funny you mentioned that, uh, uh, Mike, because um, again, in one of the YouTube playlist i saw um they actually had promos from both promotions when he was touring around and how they carry storylines with him being a face in one place to heel and another was really really fascinating 
was well again it was Tony Schiavone with no mustache was just terrifying <laughs> I'm just oh, like something's not right something's not right here but yeah I was like I never actually saw any of the mid-Atlantic stuff because we couldn't get it in South Georgia back in the 70s okay all we got were Georgia Championship Wrestling which was on TBS every Saturday night at 7.05 after Star Trek was done right uh, whereas weirdly we could get it in Ohio um, because Michelle, uh, my wife, loved Mid-Atlantic Wrestling and, and she, she'd tell me all about like uh, Nick Bockwinkle and, you know, uh, uh, Ricky Steamboat and, um, you know, uh, you know, Ric Flair and Steamboat and all those. You know, it's just like I've never seen any of this stuff. So I actually saw <laughs> this is the scariest thing is I basically actually saw world class before I actually saw Mid-Atlantic. Oh, wow. Because we would get, uh, they would put uh, world class on ESPN. Oh, okay. And that was the first time I saw, like, uh, was it, of course, the Von Eric voice. Right. Going on wrestling with, you know, bare feet. Yeah. It was not the first time I saw the Freebirds. The first time I saw the Freebirds was on uh, Georgia, back when Michael uh, P.S. Hayes had his, uh, you know, Bad Street Atlanta GA. Right. Yeah, back when it was apparently acceptable to carry a Confederate flag to the ring. Yeah, we that look was... back on those days with oh. some dimness, can't we? Yeah, <laughs> southern boys. Yes, we're rebels, don't you know? Yeah, uh, that was import that just so regretted doing back in the it, day. To be honest, and I hate to say it, it's not the worst angle that wrestling has no, come up it with. Was not, yeah. uh, there, there have been far, far worse. Oh yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, well, actually, to veer us on topic just briefly, uh, we did, of course, make uh, the NWE uh, book for Aberrant, yep. which was a follow-up of a sort to XWF for Aberrant. Right. And so, Mike, did you work on XWF as well? Not. I wanted to, but that was back when... I took a break from doing art from mid-98 to early 2000 because I was doing a children's book that never came out. Uh, oh, wow. Was that, uh, I assume that wasn't related to White Wolf then? Well, people that worked at White Wolf wrote it and were going to produce it and then things just kind of, you know, happened and uh, what was it? You know, things changed and, you know. Yeah. You so know, you, a... you missed out on the chance to illustrate Ric Flair. Yeah, but Steve Prescott did a great job doing it. So, Yeah, it's a, one of those strange nuggets of history that Ric Flair appears in an aberrant source book. Along with Stone Cold Badass. <laughs> we do, I think, have Arn Anderson maybe in the NWE, albeit with his serial numbers filed off. Yeah, I mean... They're... They're, awesome. they're a little less filed off in XWF, um, but yes. also, oh yeah, yeah. Sing names was a lot easier back in the day. <laughs> People weren't as litigious back then, I guess. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's because yeah. there was no internet, or yeah. minimal internet. And uh, yeah, looking back fondly, well, Mike, we should probably get you onto a uh, into a game at some point, Eddie and I, and we'll play some XWF or NWE, more likely for the modern aberrant. And and role play out some wrestling scenarios. It'll be like the old days where this time, Mike, the power plant accepts you. They say height is no object. We'll just put you in platform boots and call <laughs> you uh, the the strutter, strutting dwarf or something. Daniel Bryan. <laughs> <laughs> is Chris Jericho without his lifts. Yeah. <laughs> put a valet on him. You know, give him a gimmick. Uh, I mean, come on, Adam. Like, Great beard and long hair at that time. I would have been perfect. Yeah, you, I mean, you could have come to the ring like Elton John in uh, Pinball Wizard with the yeah. massive, uh, massive boots. I mean, yeah. If basically, I basically, my career was basically nothing but getting jobbed out to Steve McMichaels and Jeff Jarrett. You know, I'm like, yeah, at least I'd have done something. My grand or my great grandmother would have thrilled. <laughs> now, that's the one who loved wrestling. Well, Mike. Uh, I know you're not the most active social media person there is. Good for you on that. Uh, and with uh, social media going down the drain uh, in some quarters, at least, uh, this may be redundant. 
But if people wanted to find you and what you're working on, where is the best place for them to uh, check you out online? Right now, it's just Facebook. Facebook? Uh, yeah, I used to. Have, I had a website way back in the day for doing miniature painting stuff, and I haven't. Mm -hmm. We let the was the web hosting on that lapse back in 2009, and uh, it's been in progress since. So that's been 14 years now. Well, yeah. uh, hop into your way back machine, listeners, if you want to find that one. Yeah, that's about as far along right now as the uh, Dudes of Legend comic that we started doing in 2006 that has never progressed past the first page. Tragically. And, uh, Eddie, if people wanted to find you online, where would they go? Uh, you can find me uh, most places as Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. Uh, my website is postday.com. Uh, you can find me on X, uh, but mostly on dice.camp and God. Uh, Blue Sky. I know, man. It's, I don't even, it's, we can't call it Twitter anymore. Just X. Can we not? Um, and, uh, but honestly, the best place to find me really is the Onyxpath Discord, where I'm usually hanging out, sometimes answering people's questions, sometimes just posting random Transformers memes. Well, you can find me on the Onyx Path Discord on MatthewDawkins.com and, of course, theonyxpath.com, where every Thursday we post a new World Below blog. And recently, those blogs have been engaging quite a lot with the fans in regard to open development. We had some wonderful interactions regarding the question of armor, which might seem quite trivial to the average listener, but based on the discussions that came through it, uh, we have made some decisions I guess, uh, well, character creation-wise, regarding items and armor and weapons and I and so forth. It was uh, really quite useful. So do check out that blog, and I, I'm on there every week. And otherwise, I do want to say thank you very much, Mike. You can uh, return to your art cave now. We will release you from your bonds. Yeah, i got to get some uh, certain uh, Kickstarter books uploaded so we can go out to backers today. Oh, uh, do we want? Well, I mean, I could say we could announce what, but this won't be going out for another week or so. Yeah, so actually hear this alert. I think the errata will probably be closed at that point. So, all right. Well, which book was it? Lore Traditions. Lore of Traditions. There we go. Mage the Ascension fans rejoice. And yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Mike. Thank you so much, Eddie. And listeners, just remember: many worlds, one path counts.